Leviticus. These next two chapters, um, um, God, the author, but Moses, the author, writes down everything that the Levites are supposed to be doing and that we, we're discussing the, the feasts and sacrifices and things like that in these next two chapters. And you're going to hear the word holy come up several times, several times. It's probably the most important word in the Bible because that's, um, well, that's what we love about God the most and it's also what we uh, are, well, we shy away from it the most as well. It's, it's not our favorite subject in the world, but it's, it's our favorite God in the world. And so we'll see why um, that's so important to us. It's what brings us to Christ. It's what shows us our need for Jesus, and um, and that's what this will do here in Leviticus. Now, he's going to share some things here in chapter 22. I am going to skip some verses. I'm warning you ahead of time uh, because we've gone over these things in the past, and they're saying them again, um, but in a different way. But the first three verses of chapter 22 of Leviticus, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, and that they do not profane my holy name by what, they de- by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Say to them, whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicated to the Lord while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. The principle there is all summed up of chapter 22 in those first three verses. Now, I've told everybody else what they need to do when they become unholy, when they become defiled or whatever, through a sacrifice or a time period where you need to stay outside the camp or whatever it may be that's been prescribed. But for you Levites, I also want you to abstain from service, abstain from what you do when you're in that condition. You may have touched a dead body accidentally or on purpose because of a relative. I want you to stay away from the things of God at that time because God has to be perfectly holy all the time. That's the representation. That's the picture the world needs to see. It's a struggle for us to see all the animals that, be, that have to be sacrificed, all, the, all the, uh, the, the rules and the regulations that have to be imposed, but that's because of our unholiness that those are there. They're only there to show us. So repeatedly, as you, as you walk with the Lord as an Israelite, you would constantly be very aware of your lack and God's perfection. And that's a message. And that's the message. That's the point. You can't share the good news of Jesus Christ without understanding the primary message is I am unable to approach God as I am. I cannot come to this perfect holy God as I am. No matter how good I am or that I think I am, no matter how uh, better than the other people around me I am, I cannot approach this perfectly holy God as I am. I have to have something. So what we love about God, his holiness, is also what we, I, I hate to say dislike about God, but what's, what's the most difficult part of God is his holiness also, because that's what shows me why I can't come to him. That's what shows me why I can't have fellowship with him. But because God is perfectly holy, What's naturally a part of God, what's naturally comes out of God is his desire to have fellowship with us because of his holiness, because he's such a great God, because he's such a, and I, I don't I want to be very careful how I say this, because he's such a nice guy, because he's such a great person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is such a holy, perfect friend that he desires our friendship even when we can't approach him, and so he makes a way for us to approach him. That's what the sacrifices are all about, to show that constant love, that constant care for us, 
that although I'm perfect and you can't come into my presence, I'm going to make a way so that you can. And so that's what this is all about. And getting to that place, understanding the beauty and the perfection, the holiness of God, is not something to shy away from. It's something to look at and embrace and see, my goodness, that just shows how great a friend he is, how much distance he's made up between me. And as I read God's word, I figure out, you know, when I first got saved, I'm pretty close. I'm almost there, and God's going to make up the difference. You know, that was my thought process anyway. Jesus is just really great as that guy to get me over the top. And as you study, and as you read, and as you learn about God and his perfection and his holiness, and you're like, I think I can still see him. He's really tiny over there, you know. And I realize the distance that Christ has made up for me. I can see the... <laughs> I can see you back there, Kathy. I can see the... It's, it's huge, but Christ has made, the bridge is bigger than I thought. That's the idea. Much bigger than when I first thought. And so, man, the more I study and the more I learn about God, the more impressed I am, the more thankful I am for the bridge that God has made through this Jesus Christ, his son. I'm just amazed at his structure, his, his ability, you know. It's one thing to look at the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, in a picture or something, or you can Google it and see it, and it's red. And it's got dangly ropes on it. But if you've ever been there, that's a whole other perspective. I, Anna and I had the privilege of taking a tandem bike from down below at the Fisherman's Wharf. And we rode the tandem all the way up and across on our 14-year-old trip across the Golden Gate Bridge. And we had a couple people yell at us on the way back because we were in the biker's way, the pro bikers that knew the rules and the regulations. And, but despite all those guys, because they're from San Francisco, they're from California, you know, no offense. Um, <laughs> those who have moved here from California. What a great experience as you look, whoa, you know, and you look up and it's like that. It's and you see the clouds passing, you know, and you can't see the tops of the bridge. Whoa, you know, as you get closer, up close and personal with this Golden Gate Bridge. You now, I've never been to the top of one of those things. Apparently, you can do that. Special privileges and all. You can take an elevator to the top or, ride, you know, walk upstairs or whatever you do and get to the top of the Golden Gate Bridge and look down. I imagine that's a whole other perspective, right? I get as close as I can to that. I, I like to see those things and get my hands on them and look over the edge and spit, you know. That's just something you like to do and see. Man, I can't even see it anymore. Sorry. Tell me you don't. Well, some of you guys don't do that. That's what I do. And when I get up close and personal with Jesus, I, when, you, when you're standing next to his, he's a giant. He's a giant, you know. He's amazing. His structure, his, you appreciate him so much more. That's what this is designed to do. Bring more appreciation to the Savior. That's what the law was intended to do. See, this was written for godly people. Godless people, people that don't worship God, they don't worship Jesus, they haven't submitted their lives to him, they compare horizontally. It's a much different process for them. They just walk up to one another and they say, and you size each other up, and you kind of say, well, yeah, I think I'm better. And then you walk away, and you walk up to the next person, yeah, I'm smarter. Yeah, I'm better looking. Yeah, and it's just a whole horizontal thing, and that's the godless person's life. God is introducing him into their lives, saying, no, it's a whole other thing. I want you to look up now. I want you to look at me. I want you to see my holiness and my perfection. Not theirs, mine. And when you realize that he's absolutely perfect and holy, you realize, okay, there's absolutely no way I can top him. There's no way I can be equal to him. There's no way I can even come close to him. That's when you come to Christ. Do not profane my holy name. 
by what they dedicate to me. I don't want you profaning my holy name, because we can. We can do that. Now, let's skip over the way to 14 now, this same chapter. And if a man eats the holy offerings, or the holy offering, unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add 20%, one-fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to uh, allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. In other words, after all is said in chapter 22 of eating the holy things while defiled, if you do, there's a way. There's still a way for you to come back to him. Just restore it. Restore it, you know. Um, and you need to add 20% to that to, to obviously learn a lesson. That's a little bit of a fee, I would say, or a, a penalty. In other words, um, that that's... It keeps people from saying, oops, I forgot, I shouldn't have ate that. Oh, well, maybe next time I'll remember. And, you know, but if you know you're going to lose, de- lose on that deal, then you'll be more careful next time. So that's the whole idea behind, behind the 20%. But God makes a way. He makes a way. Verse 17, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever a man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offer his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his free will offerings, which they, uh, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. I don't want any flaws in them. They have to be perfect, he says. Whatever has uh, a defect, you shall not offer, uh, for it shall not be accepted on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. He's pointing towards Christ again with that. He's letting him know, hey, it's got to be perfect. It can't be flawed. It can't be any fault in it at all. It has to be for, you can try, but it won't be accepted. I'm telling you that ahead of time. It won't be accepted. You could offer up the lame or the blind or the whatever sheep that you have, but it won't be accepted because it's not perfect because it represents my son Jesus. He is perfect. He's going to show up, and he's going to be the sacrifice for the world. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Okay, That's the idea. I want him to be perfect, and you have to fulfill that picture. Free will or vow. It's got to be perfect. No defects. Don't give me your leftovers. Don't give me the stuff that nobody wants that you can't sell at market don't give me your give me your best i'm giving you my best god would say and i want you to be in the habit and to learn that i'm giving you your best by you giving me my best back that's the idea if i give you a perfect sheep it reminds you that the sacrifice given for you later on is going to be perfect as well god's not giving us leftovers he's not giving us you know angels with a broken wing or something like that he's going to give him his own son to die on the cross for our sins. And I want you to reflect that in your own life. And I think that should carry on, even as Christians. We don't have sacrifices anymore. You aren't walking goats and sheep and, and cattle inside the building here to say, just give this to the Lord. But we do do it in other ways, whether that's our gifts or talents, um, your tithe, whatever it may be. It needs to be the best, not the leftovers. Not the leftovers. That's a, a dangerous uh, precedence to set, even in your own heart. If I'm giving God my leftovers, it, it actually reflects upon what I think about Christ. It's what I think about Jesus. It's where, it's where I stand with him. Yeah, yeah I'm going to give him just the bare minimum. I'm just going to do exactly what the law, you know. 
Mm, it's, it's a dangerous... He wants us to live a, an amazing life of generosity and grace and mercy, full of that in our lives, overflowing out of our lives, because that's how he is towards us. Um, and we reflect that. If you experience God's generosity, if you experience his grace, if you experience his mercy, you're going to be one of those people that just does that for people. You're just like that around them because you've experienced it. For those that, you know, it's a symptom, really. It's a telling symptom. Those who are, you know, tight and closed in and they don't like to talk to people and they're afraid and they don't, don't yeah, whatever. That's a reflection of their walk with Jesus. They, that's how they have their walk with God. Um, and so we've got to be careful about that. God says, don't give me the, uh, he says in verse 22, those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make any offering by fire of them on the altar uh, to the Lord. Either a bull, a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. Okay, so he gave an exception there. You know, um, the widow's mite's the perfect example of that. In Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is sitting across from the tithe box, basically. They had these big boxes in front of the temple, and people would come in, and they would bring their offering to the Lord. It was a 10% tithe. That's what tithe means, 10%. And the, you know, the guys that had a lot of money would come in, blow their trumpets, and pour a bucket of you know, whatever in there to make it jingle and jangle, and everybody would be like, oh, wow, that was about filled up the box with that one guy there. That's, you know, he's got a lot going for him. And, all. and it was meant to build their esteem in the community, basically, is why they would do that. And so they're watching, and all of a sudden this little widow comes in, and she just sneakily drops in two mites. And Jesus said, did you see that? Guys are like, what? Did, what that widow, did you see what she did? She gave more than everybody else. And the guys are dumbfounded. They're like, no, I didn't even hear it. There were no trumpets. There wasn't a bunch of jingling when the buckets poured in. In fact, I barely heard a tin sound as these things hit the bottom of the bucket. What are you talking about? He says, no, she gave more because she gave all. She gave all. God wasn't looking at the amount. He wasn't looking at, well, that guy wrote a $100,000 check, and that guy just dropped a dollar in there. No, that guy had $10 million at home, and this guy had a dollar is the idea. It has nothing to do with the quantity. It has nothing to do with the amount. It has everything to do with what it costs that person. What does it cost us to be gracious to other people? What does it cost us to be merciful to other people? What does it cost us? Not what do I gain from it. What am I going to make off of it? Am I going to get a good business deal, a good business transaction by being friends with this person? Am I going to, you know, it's not about, that's not it. It's what does it cost us? And so that's his point there. Verse 24. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your, in your land. It's just flat out embarrassing to show up with some gimpy little thing. Hey, I got this thing. I, I couldn't sell it at the garage sale. Do you think the church would want it? You couldn't sell it at a garage sale for a quarter. I guess you could leave it at the door, and we'll throw it in the dumpster for you, maybe. It's offensive. It's embarrassing sometimes. It's like, uh, well, no, I, I don't have time to fix that. I don't have time to make that work. I don't have time to. It's, it's, uh, it's just something that I've never done, and I've led by example in that area, I hope. And I just hope, you know, as we see God's word clearly talk about this and you see the leadership and example in front of you that we'd all follow those things you know give god your best don't give him 
what no one else would take, basically, or you couldn't sell at the market. Verse 25, nor from uh, a foreigner, a foreigner's hand, shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. That's the key. This is a little, little subject here that God's bringing up ahead of time. Lest someone line your pockets so that you can pay your tithe so that it really doesn't have to come out of your bank account. This is sort of like a special interest, you know, bribe kind of thing. Hey, let me in there in Jerusalem on Saturday when I'm not supposed to be in there, and I'll give you 10%. That'll cover your tithe for the week. Hey, that's a good idea. And they take that 10%, throw it in the tithe box. Everybody thinks they tithe, and really, no, it came from this foreigner over here. He's like, no, it's defiled. It's not accepted. You just lost 10%. And you broke the law by letting them into Jerusalem on Saturday. That's the idea behind it. Don't, don't even think that way, God says. It needs to come from you. It needs to be yours. It needs to be something God's provided for you, and it needs to be something that you've given away then. That's out of your heart. It costs you, not somebody else. Very basic principle. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day... And thereafter, it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it is a cow or a ewe, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. When you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten, and you shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore, you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. That's a different word. We don't use that a whole lot. Um, um, But it means to reverence God as holy. God is going to be hallowed. That has to happen in our hearts. We have to think of God as holy. We have to to believe he's a holy, perfect God. And that's, that's our responsibility. We come to God knowing he's holy and perfect. It seems like, well, yeah, I know that. I got that down. But Do we approach him that way in our prayer life? Do we approach him that way when we come to worship him with song or or what other activity we do to worship God? Um, Do we approach him as hallowed? He's holy. He wants us to lift up holy hands without wrath. That's what that means. When, When you praise God and you're lifting up your hands, are you lifting up holy hands to a holy God? Have you got things right? Have you... Have you worked things out? Have you forgiven sins of those in your life? Have you received forgiveness of sins from those in your life? Are you lifting up holy hands? Are you approaching God in Jesus is the idea. Because you can't approach him any other way. To show up on your own in the presence of God without Christ is to not reverence him as holy, is to not hallow him. But he will be hallowed. And knowing that, you're holy. There's nothing I can do. If Moses couldn't see you, I had to hide in the, he had to hide in the rock crevice and cover him up with his hand, and all he could see was the afterglow of God as he walked by. If Moses couldn't do it, what makes me think I can show up in the presence of this holy God without Jesus Christ, who is my holiness, who is your holiness? God provides the holiness. I'm holy. You're not. I'll provide the holiness for you. That's the garment we wear to be in the presence of God. So, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I set you apart. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. He's going to go through several of them. We won't get through all of them today, but a few of them. 
Now, before we get started, as a New Testament saint, I want you to understand Colossians chapter 2. Let's turn there real quick and read this before we go over all of these feasts. Because they can be a little crazy. I looked it up. I was trying to figure... God didn't want me to know the answer to this because I looked it up and tried to figure out how many days off these guys actually got every year. Because I want to know how much vacation time I should ask for my believing boss and say, you know what, the Jews got like three months off every year. I'm thinking if you're a believer, you know, I looked it up to try to figure out, okay, because I'm trying to count it up. Okay, so there's a seven-day feast and it's holy on the first day and the seventh day, but do they work in between because it says, and I, I couldn't do the math. I couldn't figure it out. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll cheat and just Google it. Someone's obviously done this for me. And he, this Jewish guy says, it's titled Jewish Feast 101 for the Gentiles. Yeah, that's what he calls it. That's me. I got it. So I read it, and he says, we don't even know. <laughs> I said, yes. He says, it's just a guess. We don't even know whether we're supposed to be working or whether we're not. Some things are real clear. Some things we're not so sure about. And he was really funny about it and put a joke about every paragraph. Every other paragraph, he told a joke about these things. There was this lawyer who came in, you know, and told all these lawyer jokes. And, and anyway, you should look it up. It's pretty funny. So I didn't get to find out how many days off I'm supposed to be, you know, receiving. Um, so, uh, but that doesn't have anything to do with this. Colossians 2, sorry, I'm getting there. I got sidetracked with my own story. Um, uh, start in, uh, maybe I should get in the right book. Okay. I did. I just can't find it. You'd think I'd know as a pastor where these books are. There it is. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he does not or has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. In other words, Christ is the substance of all these things that are being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Okay, I know we know that. I know I read that about uh, every other week, at least I read that. But it's so important for us to understand, as Christians who have received Christ as our Lord and Savior, we trust in Jesus for our salvation, the stuff we're reading back here was all disappointing to him. And now that we have him, we don't do this anymore. Okay? And so I read that because he warns us, don't let anybody judge you in these very things we're about to read. The first thing he reads there, writes in verse 3, is six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. I'm not supposed to let anybody judge me in that, whether I'm working on the seventh day of the week or not. I can't. He says, don't let anybody. It's up to me whether I let them or not. It's up to me whether I accept it or I walk away in shame because I'm mowing my lawn on Sunday or something like that. I'm not to let them do that. They don't understand what Christ has done. They haven't read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, or they don't understand what those verses mean. When he says that he is our rest, he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. 
I want you right now to never work on the seventh day in the Old Testament. I never want you to do that. I just want you to, to, to always take a day off and rest because eventually you're going to rest from your labors. Then in Hebrews, he writes to the Hebrews, telling the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews in this area. Don't you understand that Christ is the fulfillment of that? David even said, and he said that there's yet to have a rest. We've always been followed the Sabbath. Nobody works on the seventh day. In fact, we throw rocks at people that do, and they still do today. They throw rocks at you if you're driving on the Sabbath over in Israel. The the Hasidic Jews do. Um, The strict uh, Jews do. So we've been doing that. But then David writes in here, he says, but that's not the rest he's talking about. There still remains another rest, and that rest is Jesus Christ. And now he's come, and we now rest in him, and we understand it's a spiritual thing now, as is everything else. We don't offer up lambs and bulls and goats anymore because it was symbolic. It was, it's a spiritual thing now. I've never crucified Christ, but he was crucified. I received that. It's a spiritual thing now. The rest that I find now from my labors is I'm no longer working for heaven. I have found it freely in Christ, and now I'm resting. I am always resting now from my labors. I'm in Christ. Not only do I keep the Sabbath day perfectly, I keep the Sabbath every day perfectly. I rest on Mondays. I rest on Tuesdays. I rest on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. I rest from my labors from getting into heaven. And now I trust and rest in Christ. He is my propitiation for my sins. He's the one that makes up the difference. He's the one that's done it for me. And so I don't let anybody judge me in these things. At the end, we'll read Romans 14 to get a clear understanding of that, but I want to move forward here on the next section. Verse 4, the next uh, feast he's talking about is the Passover feast and the unleavened bread feast. This was when the Israelites were taken out of Egypt. They have the Passover meal, which means this is the time when the angel of death passed over all those who applied the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of their homes. They were protected on the other side. And they had to leave in such a hurry that they had unleavened bread the next day. They had to get out without having the bread rise. And so those two are consecutive, the 14th and the 15th of the month, of the first month of the year, their year, not our year, first month of the Jewish calendar year, 14th and the 15th, that is the, the two Sabbaths. Now, the second one, the first one is the Passover. That's the 14th. Then right after it, the next day, you start the next feast of unleavened bread, which lasts seven days. Okay, so that goes all the way through the 21st, where they can't eat any leavened bread at all. And they make a really cool game out of it, which is a whole other Bible study altogether, where they hide the leaven, and the kids all search for the leaven. They try to find it. You know, and then they find the leaven, they cast it out of the house. It's kind of a fun thing that they do um, to remind them that um, there is no leaven, there was no leaven, and uh, they left quickly, in a hurry, is the idea. So... These are the feasts of the Lord, uh, of the Lord, holy convocations which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So on the 15th you don't have to do any work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. So some debate. Is that all week? We don't have to work? Or is that just the first and the seventh? Well, we don't know. Um, some do, some don't. But that's all to represent those two events. Um, um, the Passover represents for us as Christians that Jesus Christ is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, and the angel of death is passing over us. We're protected, just like they were behind the blood of Christ 
it doesn't take our lives anymore. And then the unleavened bread symbolizes that we leave in a hurry and there is no sin in our lives. There's no, leaven always represents sin in the Bible. No sin, no sin, okay? And the Lord spoke to Moses, this is the next one, the feast of first fruits. Um, this is a, a picture of Jesus. Uh, he, he rose from the dead actually on the feast of first fruits. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give you, when you finally get there, because they're not there yet, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and its drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hin. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Jesus, of course, as he entered into heaven, was the first fruits. He was the first one to go to heaven. And then, of course, he led captivity captive. The rest of the saints went also. And now to die now is to be, to be asked for the bodies to be present with the Lord. We immediately go to heaven. But he was the first. He was the first fruits. So that's what this one represents, the first fruits. Now, the next one is the Feast of Weeks, verse 15. This represents Pentecost. After Jesus rose from the dead, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. Now we see this, the Feast of Weeks. Um, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, uh, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the way of offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings, Two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour that shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits uh, to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord. With their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priests, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. So an exciting time to represent, obviously, the Feast of Weeks 50. That's the Pentecost took place when God poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church. and They were given gifts to use to bring him glory and to bring people to Jesus. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, you shall, uh, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Again, we've read that before. God's reiterating that. Leave that for them to pick up. Now, The next one is the Feast of Trumpets. This is an interesting one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. No reasoning behind this one, necessarily. I mean, there is, but 
He doesn't share it right away. If you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, this is where it applies to us. And let's start um, in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who died in Jesus or sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is a, a picture of the rapture, the picture of the return of Christ. It's exciting. Um, right before the great tribulation period takes place, the trumpets are blown, or the trumpet of God is blown. Not the angel trumpets, that's during the uh, great tribulation. But the trumpet of God is blown, and we're caught up together with him in the, in the air. It's exciting. And so they do this, and they would blow these trumpets, and that's what they were, that's what they were foreshadowing, is what that's going to And that hasn't happened for us yet. This is one of those feasts that they, they're still doing, and they don't really know why exactly, um, um, but we do, and, and we're waiting for it as well. Kind of exciting. Another day off, another day of rest. Uh, verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day. This is the day of atonement. This is Yom Kippur. Okay, um, This is the one they're talking about here. Um, the day of atonement. Um, and they still celebrate that. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls. On the ninth day of the, of the month, at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. It seems like the penalties are awfully harsh from this, but the idea is, don't you understand, haven't I made it clear to you that without what I'm offering you, and you show up without what I'm offering to you, it is death. It's death. And I want to I show that. I don't want you to take this stuff lightly. I want you to learn your lesson. I, I want you to go through this, spend the day thinking about the Day of Atonement. The day, that's all they did all day long, the Day of Atonement. Why do I need to be atoned for? Because of my sins. Well, how's that going to happen? Because I keep doing these blood and bulls and goats and all these things, and it's still not completely covered. What happens? That's the question they're supposed to be asking. You get some guy, Bob, over there who doesn't want to do it. He wants to get ahead, so he's going to go ahead and plow his field, or he's going to do something on that day. God looks down and says, Bob ain't getting it. Bob's a bad example. Everybody's looking at Bob saying, why am I not Bob? If Bob can plow field, why can't I plow field? So God says, nope. Because that's what happens when you don't hollow me, when you try to come to me on your own good works. This is what's going to happen. It's very dangerous and detrimental to your health to show up in my presence without my Savior that I'm offering for you. Very important to understand. He's not just being mean or, or uh, you know, overreacting to people not taking a day off. 
He's saying, no, 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 they're thinking and their mind's not right. They think they could approach me without my Savior. They can't. They're in trouble. And so he's trying to keep that. And that's why these things are so serious. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be a feast of the tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. Exciting. So a couple more days off here, probably. First and seventh. I love holidays. We celebrate a lot of holidays at our house. We, we choose to celebrate Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving. We do the 4th of July, and we even do Valentine's Day. Not as the romantic kind of way that, you know, although I do give my wife a, a nice card, not a, not, a, not a dutiful card, but a, a romantic card, but we do it with our kids too. You know, I know what Valentine's Day means, and don't you know where that comes from in the background and all that? Well, yeah, and so does Saturnalia and Christmas and all, and so does Ashtar, Easter. And I know where these things came from. We're, we're not doing it that way. We're doing it our way. And so we, t- we can celebrate Valentine's Day with cards and candies and, and, and talk about just our love for each other as a family and our, God's love for us, you know. Those days are really special to our kids. It's really important to break up, in my opinion, the monotony of day in and day out, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. What I've learned at Rogers since I've been working there is you show up at some of these older folks' homes, they don't even know what day it is. And I, you can look at that two ways. Wouldn't that be great? To not wonder if it's Monday or not, you know? On the other hand, it's just so blah and bland. Every day is the same. It all blends together. I'm just breathing. That's all I am. It's one, either way, um, it's nice to break these things up. I like the 4th of July. I buy fireworks. That's a waste of money. I don't think so. Absolutely don't think so. You know, I love fireworks. It's fun. I watch Bo and all these guys. They just get so excited. We go into the fireworks stand. Yes, that's the best part. We do that because it's so important to them. And then I sit in the chair and I watch them and I pray they don't do anything to their fingers or get burned or whatever, and everybody does once in a while. But um, I just love it. I love Christmas. I love the whole idea about it. I love thinking about it. Here it comes. I like to clean up afterwards, uh, the fatigue, the rest you need after the whole thing. I love it. God's built this into his system in the Old Testament for a reason. I want to break it up. It ain't about just... Uh, eating, drinking, and dying. You know? It's not about that. It's about celebrating. They would take this whole day and, and worship on this day. The whole nation, can you imagine if the whole nation just stopped functioning and they all stopped and just worshiped God periodically throughout the year? I want you to do that. I want you to remember what this is, what this is all about. It's about us. It's about us. And so they would stop these busy parents and say, on the Feast of Tabernacles, you're going to live outside and camp outside with your kids for one week. Now for them, it represented the fact that they were in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't know that yet, by the way, but this Feast of Tabernacles is going to represent their transition from Egypt to the Promised Land. And so they get outside, and there's no TV, there's no cell phones out there. Kidding, they didn't have them back then, I know. But they're, they're, they're unplugged from whatever they were plugged into that many years ago. And they sat there and they're looking at the stars because normally they didn't. They were inside and they're looking at the stars. And the kids are asking, why are we camping? And they tell them, 
well, here's why we're camping, kids. And the dad would have to step up and tell the story. We're camping because we used to live in Egypt. Egypt, what's that? I mean, this is generations later. Egypt, what's that? Egypt, oh, man, they'd whip us. And, and they told them the whole story. And God did this, that, and the kids are just like, you're kidding me. The Red Sea just went, yeah, it was awesome. We walked right through on dry land. And they spend the whole week outside camp and learning about this stuff. God says, I want you to stop what you're doing and take this time because it's about us. It's about us. It's so important. Set those times aside for your families, for yourself. Just you, if it's just you. I don't have, I'm not married yet. That's okay. Take that day off. Take that day and think and, 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 and rest, first of all, but also learn, soak it in, absorb, share it with others, whatever it may be. So that's what this first attack Feast of Tabernacles is, okay? This also represents for us as Christians the millennial reign of Christ. Um, anyway, uh, we'll go on. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice, a drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. This is above and beyond all that. Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the, on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the, fruit of the, of the beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows and brooks. And you shall rejoice before the Lord uh, your God for seven days. What are they doing with those things? It's like a Palm Sunday before Palm Sunday is real. You know? Take these branches and wave them. Wave them. Because I provided them for you. I give you shade. I give you the fruit. All that. That's the idea. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it on the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Those are tents, okay? Um, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Now, that's where we close. I'm going to let you read Romans 14 on your own. We don't have time to go over that this morning, but read Romans 14. Read the whole chapter of Romans 14 and keep it in mind as we've gone through uh, Leviticus here, are going through Leviticus here. Very important. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, this is all your idea. It's all for us. You don't need it. You don't need the feast. You don't need the Sabbaths. You don't need any of that stuff. But you give it to us so that we're reminded that it's about our relationship with you. That whatever it is we're doing down here on earth, there's a reason, there's a purpose, and it's for, uh, uh, it's by design. And you're the designer. And we need to acknowledge that and take that time. So God, we thank you for this time of rest that we've had this morning. We've taken an hour and a half or so out of our, our busy week and we've sat at your feet and we've learned from your word and we've sang songs to you giving you praise. Lord, we hope you were blessed because I know that we were. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Thank you for showing us how much you love us. Thank you for showing us your holiness and the gap and the distance that your son Jesus has made up for us to be holy. And we rest in that. Lord, bless these guys as they go today. Help them have a, a wonderful day, Lord, of rest and peace in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.